We ready to do this thing? Let's do it. Gentlemen. Let's do it. In person, <laughs> six feet apart, safely. Yeah, we're, we're gonna being do, compliant. <laughs> we're going to do intro real quick. Then there's like a little pause where the music goes in after. Mm-hmm. And then we take it right away and introduce you. It's a crazy unique format <laughs> that we've developed. For yeah. Some proprietary audio <laughs> stuff yeah. we're working on. I'm Matt Robinson. I'm Noah Bissell. And this is Graining In. Jake Hill. Play it extra loud. Yes. I'm in the mood to be slow and careful. My body's ready for a mountain climb. All of a sudden it will all become lovely. The flower that opens in the morning light. Every episode, I think I start by exclaiming how excited I am because I'm an excitable person. And that is always true. It is never a lie. But today, I am excited. It's especially true today because we've waited about two full years to have this conversation. And we've teased it out a little bit the entire time to, to the Grain Gang. And today, finally, we sit down with Rob Todd, founder of Allagash Brewing. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, I hope I don't disappoint. That's a lot of pressure. They tune in <laughs> waiting they, even longer than COVID to do this. They tune into us every week. There is no way that you could disappoint. <laughs> but, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have been here. And that is the nature of our affliction, I think. Yeah, but also, I'm so happy we didn't because this... We still would have like the stuff would still probably be in the box <laughs> and it would be a box. It'd be more like a like the kind of thing yeah. you use when you're moving houses just strown in. So we'd be having timing you worked out owner's well. manuals to us about how to <laughs> how to figure this out. Yes. Well, it's nice, too, that we can do it compliant in mm-hmm. person now, you know. Yep. Got some, uh, like I said, challenge. some little shrubbery just for you. Yeah. Um, the, the the Rob Todd foliage. We were we were toying with that name. Sure <laughs> I like it. I feel like I feel it's transporting me. I feel like I'm in Hawaii or Costa Rica or California or something like that. Man's got surfing on the brain for this sure. This is cool. But but yeah, I um, probably anyone listening to this is expecting me to go into about five minutes of of uh, fandom of of absolute fandom, and I I will spare you. It's been well established, and mm-hmm. we will and we will move on. Let's have a conversation. Let's have an actual conversation. <laughs> I have nothing for you to sign, so you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> but um. The, the, the one thing I will kind of break, break that on is I've told the story. I told, told it to Jason and just told it to so many people. Um, the story of how much it meant to me when you guys came to our first brew day. Mm. Um, again, that's been very well established. But it thinking about kind of this and over the years, it slowly kind of occurred to me that I think why that was so huge to me for beyond the obvious was just that like spiked spiked everything emotionally you have kind of at at that stage in the game and thinking about it today i i kind of pictures coming to my mind of of you with a ponytail kind of probably feeling a lot of those same things you know i'm working my way towards a ponytail but uh out of the many many things that i'd love to talk about i'd love to just kind of throw it back to Truly, those those inception days. You know, I think I've heard bits and pieces of it. Totally, but um, not the uh, not the whole whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, listening to your stuff, one of my one of my favorite things, and like Noah said, twenty five years in business, twenty five years successful. The the story gets honed in and and well 
narrated and, and well said. But one of the things that jumped out to me uh, in listening to the different iterations on the different platforms was I mean, being at just this tiny little window of a very small window of exposure to craft beer before you pulled the trigger on. Mm. This is what I'm going to yeah. do for my entire life. I think you talked about being the third employee at Otter Creek, only being there for a year and leaving when there was eight. And even at that time, kind of saying that, what's the founder's name? Leonard? Lawrence Miller. Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. that's a great guy. Super supportive. He even came over and helped me brew my first batch of beer. Wow, which <laughs> that I will is forever above and beyond. Yeah. That's yeah. the full circle right yeah. there. And that's, you know, you, you mentioned the early days when Jason and I came and introduced ourselves uh -huh. to, to you guys who, are, who were our new neighbors at the time. I mean, that's always the support that has been extended to us. So I've always really enjoyed and, you know, and felt an obligation to uh -huh. support newcomers to the brewing community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been lucky out in that industrial park where we are you know unfortunately a lot of our really good friends have left it's always a bummer when <laughs> you know some people have left but i mean you know main main beer co started there they left they're in a beautiful spot you guys started there i mean this place is amazing um you know you're in a beautiful spot now it's sad to see people go but it's you know it's fun to welcome people there's been a lot of brewers in that spot and you know we've we've made an effort to welcome any newcomers to the community when they when they show up totally well i'll even i'll speak for everyone saying it does it it, it really does have an impact um but just going back to kind of yeah that framework kind of you came up in it at least the story i've heard was kind of you were very direct about your intentions kind of gave a timeline made the 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 assurance that it would not be you know in burlington or something just down the road how how old were you at that at that stage? I was like twenty five. I mean, that's struck me and as pretty young to have that much sort of owner operator mentality. I guess, especially for someone that that wasn't <laughs> at, that, at that time. I was I was naive. I was bullheaded. Um, but and, and there's a lot like all these thoughts are like racing through my head about how I get into it and why I started making Belgian style beers. Um, I mean, I, I definitely I I knew that I didn't know anywhere near enough to be running a brewery mm -hmm. after only a year experience at Otter <laughs> Creek. And we can talk a little bit about how I kind of stumbled into the business. But, yeah. um, you know, I was under no illusions that uh, I knew what I was doing. And I just tried to keep it really, really simple coming out of the gates. I mean, it was a super simple cobbled together dairy system that was really based pretty closely on the system that I learned the trade on at Otter Creek. I yeah. basically built it myself. I had no employees. So, it, you know, that simplifies things. <laughs> quite, and, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I brewed one beer for almost the first year. I don't remember when we introduced the second beer, the double, but for quite a while, I just brewed one beer. And I think that's, it was rare then. 
and it's still really rare now. Yeah. Uh, draft only, just the local Portland, Maine market, you know, one distributor. So it's just, it was really, really, really simple. And um, I've always believed in, I don't know what, how you want to characterize it, baby steps or being incremental, maybe even to some extent to our detriment. Maybe mm-hmm. we, uh, there are times, you know, on reflection that maybe we move a little too slowly with things, but, you know, uh, at least when we finally jump into whatever the next step is, we have a lot of confidence mm-hmm. and we don't feel like we're just trying to take too much on uh, too quickly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I really stumbled into the beer business. I, I graduated from Middlebury College in Vermont in 91. I had a geology degree and mm-hmm. um I'm just one of those people, if I'm not passionate about something, I'm completely like disengaged. Like I'm getting fidgety within an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I'm not generally doing a good job with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and when I graduated, I kind of dreaded ending up in a career that was like in that bucket, like mm-hmm. something I wasn't passionate about. So I was almost like scared to commit to something. So I went out to, I bought a van, saw some dead shows on the way out to Colorado, <laughs> but ended up in Colorado, um, mostly working construction jobs, restaurant jobs. I definitely wasn't lazy. I worked like almost every day out there by the time I got out there. Like in a nomadic um, fashion? Semi, uh-huh. semi, semi nomadic. Okay. <laughs> um, there was like nomadic periods, <laughs> um, uh, but I did that, and, and and you know, after a couple of years of that, I kind of felt like I wanted to get get some roots down and like figure out what I wanted to do. And totally. the two things that kind of intrigued me were restoration, carpentry. I, I had I had worked. Um, with my hands a lot for summer jobs in high school and college, like carpentry type jobs. Uh-huh. I had a boat, wood boat restoration job one summer. Um, so, so I was interested in that. I love working with my hands. I love like creating things. And the other thing I was interested in was geology. I had a geology degree. I was intrigued by geology. I liked the fact that, uh, you know, you, you tended to be outside a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked science. I was, I've always been fascinated by science. So I went back to Vermont and I basically saw myself doing one of those two things, but I wasn't like crazy about either of them. Mm-hmm. Literally the day I got to Vermont, I got there at about 4 PM. I rented a room in an old farmhouse. I don't even remember how I ended up there. It was before you found, find things on internet, <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. So I don't know how I found door it. Door. I, yeah. yeah. But I got there at like four o'clock, moved my stuff up to the room above the kitchen in the old farmhouse. I was all moved in at five and I literally, I walked over to the phone and called a buddy of mine, um, Ian Kirkwood. And I'm like, I need a job. Like I need something to tide me over. I'll do anything. I've worked restaurants, construction. I just need to basically pay the bills. And he he said, well, just today, my boss said at this little brewery I'm working at that we need a part-time keg washer. So, I mean, like a light bulb, of course, went off in my head because I've always I've loved drinking beer. Um, I'd never experienced beers like the ones we're drinking now. You know, I hadn't experienced the craft beer movement yet, but I was like, huh, I could maybe get paid. So I checked that important box and I maybe get to take home free beer. I was like, I'll be there tomorrow. And, you know, I, I walked in the door and literally it was like. I don't know, it's like a, a beam of light came down uh-huh. from the heavens. Uh, I mean, I love working with my hands and I used to 
one of the things when I was a kid that I could be passionate about and that would just suck me in and I could do for hours was take stuff apart. Like whenever anything broke at my house, like mm-hmm. the vacuum cleaner, hair dryer, radio, lawnmower, I'd ask for it and I'd take it apart. And I'd like, I could do it for hours and I'd be in like my happy place. And uh-huh. I walked in the brewery, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm in a giant erector set or like a tinker <laughs> toy set. Like I can do this thing that I was passionate about as a kid, like all day long. And after literally just two days working there, even though I was washing kegs, you know, it was just, there's, you know, as, as you both know, it's a, they're small environments and it was only a three person operation or four person at the time. Yeah. You know, I saw this like science component mm-hmm. um, that was obviously there. And then I'm drinking these beers. They had, I think, three beers at the time. They were rotating through seasonal beers. But I was like, wow, th- there's like a really cool artistic creative component to this. I li- literally in two days, I completely fell in love with it and knew I was going to do it for the rest of my life. And that's wow. I think to, to Noah's point to have that at that moment in time to I think I've heard you describe it as say, like, I'm going to be here for a year. I want to work as many different parts of this as I can and understand. And then I want to go do it on my own. But I'll work my ass off and then I won't do that in your backyard. The like the awareness at that young of, of an age from an owner operator kind of mindset makes sense but but those things are easy to say then to mm-hmm. go ahead and, and actually keep your word to that and go do it is that was that the singular thing that made portland what it was like what do we that's two states away i'll go i'll give them some distance and i'll start it up here um what made you fall in love with portland in the in the first place to to be where to call mm-hmm. allagash home you know it's funny like i think one of the reasons I stumbled into brewing was a complete lack of awareness almost of (laughs) like, I didn't know why I was restless and I didn't really know why I, I, you know, until maybe I had 20 or so years of hindsight or 10 years of hindsight, I wasn't maybe as self-aware as I'm uh, portraying now. I just, I couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And I I think just subconsciously I was afraid of getting sucked into something I wasn't passionate about. Mm. But once I found it, I was like, I I can, after spending two days in the brewery, I was like, I can do this for the rest of my life. Like, I love this. I really thought work, I've got air quotes here, was something that was miserable. Like you woke up in the morning, you weren't happy to go in and do it. You had to suck it up for eight hours or whatever it was because you have to put food on the table and pay the rent, right? Yeah. And, you just and do then that you for went home years. and then, <laughs> yeah, and then you just kind of, you know, <laughs> dreaded the next day. You know, that's kind of what I thought yeah. work was until I discovered this and I, you know, I discovered it kind of by chance. Um, and I, you know, I, I really, I almost, it was the first time I didn't, I didn't even like think of it as work. It was yeah. literally, it was like the only comparison I think I can make is me as a kid, like getting to take the lawnmower apart. Like I could do it <laughs> for 10 hours, like learn about it. And, and I was intrigued by it and I was working with my hands and not getting fidgety. So, uh, you know, I had no idea what it was going to entail. I was very, like I said, I was very naive, but like I was in like unbelievably eager to just like dive into it. And I literally two days into it, I, I ordered every book I could. I asked Lawrence, you know, what are the books on brewing that you'd recommend? And there weren't a ton of them back then. Yeah. The yeah. Greg, Greg Noonan book. Yep. Probably. Yeah. Uh, what a, uh, the joy of homebrewing maybe. You have Charlie's book, complete yeah. joy of homebrewing. I love, that was the first one I got. Uh-huh. I still love it. 
Um, you know, I was just texting Charlie a couple of weeks ago. He might be in Maine this next summer. Um, I'm hoping to see him. Uh, the Greg Noonan book, That Brewing Lager Beer. Yep. And I knew Greg. Greg uh, was running the Vermont Even Pub and time, Brew yeah, back then. Yeah, of course he would, right. So, uh, you know, I went up there a few times and he was a just a super cool guy. Really just genuinely nice guy. Um, brewing some amazing beers. Um, so, yeah, I just got my hands on every book. And I literally... I'd, I'd work for 10 or 12 hours and honestly, it couldn't be long enough. Like I just loved it. I didn't want to go home. And then when I did get home, I'd drink a growler full of beer, drink my day, <laughs> day's allotment and eat dinner. Um, it was cool. I was living in this farmhouse and the owners of the house, this young couple, they were older than me at the time, but I would look at them as very young couple now. <laughs> but they, they were like, there's a garden in the backyard, like help yourself. So I'd go Damn. home and like literally uh, pick my dinner, like make this huge bowl of salad, yeah. sit there with a jug of beer on the porch, like on a beautiful 80 degree Vermont day. I was like, man, life doesn't get better than this. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard anything more Vermont mm. than what you just described. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I just, I fell in love with everything I was, uh, I was experiencing. I mean, you know, I I loved Colorado. I love going back to Colorado, but I grew up in New England. I grew up outside of Boston and I spent a lot of time in New Hampshire in the summers. I spent some time in Maine. I just I love New England. I felt like this is where I was meant to be. Um, I, I love everything about it. I uh Love the the coastline and the mountains. And as much as I complain about the weather, which I was today, I was like, how long is this winter going to last? Like, it's, It was snowing when I left Milo today. Yeah, yeah, really? exactly. Legit. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I complain about it. But you know what? I love the change of seasons. Yeah. I just wanted to be in New England. Um, so... You know, I was starting to consider my options when I was at Otter Creek. And it is really funny because nowadays, as long as you're at least two blocks away, you're far enough away. I mean, there's so many breweries, yeah. but there was only like, I don't know, two or three hundred breweries when I started at Otter Creek. You need a couple state lines for this to be OK. <laughs> yeah, that, that I kind of just figured it, it wouldn't. It, it, especially at the time, it wouldn't be a very ethical thing mm -hmm. for me to ask Lawrence to give me as many as opportunities as he could in that brewery and then, you know, be directly competing with him right down the road. So I was intrigued with, um, you know, more rural settings like Northwestern Mass intrigued me. Um, New Hampshire I was interested in. But I, I had some really close college buddies that grew up in Portland. And I had visited them on a few occasions in the summer, um, just on summer break in college. Mm -hmm. And I just, I loved everything about it. I loved, I always loved being around the water. I wasn't surfing at the time, but <laughs> I love like the water and the ocean. Yeah. You know, there were lakes. I've been a skier all my life and there's like Nordic skiing, you know, great Alpine skiing around here, you know, and, you know, pretty dependable Nordic and Alpine yeah. skiing. Yeah. And um, I really, I was fascinated by the food scene that was just starting to emerge in Portland and the beer scene that was emerging in Portland. I mean, Geary's opened up, mm -hmm. I think in 86 or 87. Mm -hmm. um, I should know. I think it was 87. But, you know, he was the he was the first one yeah. to start a craft brewery really east of the Mississippi. Yeah. So 
uh, you know, in a lot of ways, Portland is like the birthplace of this movement that, yeah. that I was wanting to be part of. So I just I liked everything about it. It just checked all the boxes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I came over here, you know, again, I don't I think I literally like I dr- I think I literally drove to Portland on like July 1st and walked up to one of those. I don't even know what they those newspaper things <laughs> yeah. with the free papers in it. Um, opened it up and looked at apartments for rent and, you know, called a few numbers, looked at an apartment, got one quick and just started writing the business plan. But I'll tell you, I couldn't be happier to be in Portland. This is just an amazing, mm. it's an amazing town and it's amazing to see how it's evolved. I mean, even since you guys started it's evolved like right since i've lived here is kind of my marking obviously of of where i because since i didn't grow up here and and um it's i i can only imagine certainly from someone that's lived here their whole life or someone like you you know that that came here nearly 30 years ago Mm. um before we you know don't beat around the bush and get into white i do want to ask when you talk about um the beer scene obviously i i'm more familiar with kind of able to envision how that probably looked ish in its in its infancy mm-hmm. here but the the culinary scene I honestly that's just not really my my world so I wonder yeah what that looked like for for you coming in and clearly sensing this had a ton of potential was what is mm-hmm. was rapidly extending but uh, at the mid 90s yeah I mean it, at the time growing up in even when I was a kid like in the 70s, but definitely in the 80s and even in the 90s, there weren't like that many places you could go where there were a lot of phenomenal restaurant experiences. I mean, yeah. even, like I grew up outside of Boston and I mean, there were great restaurants in Boston for sure, but there weren't like hundreds of them, you know, <laughs> where you could kind of like every night of the year go out and eat in one of them. And it in Portland, was kind, it was just starting to kind of head in that direction. I mean, there was just these like, phenomenal restaurants and cool craft beer bars. I mean, like Street and Company um, was a, I don't know how long that had been in business at the time, but I mean, just like a world-class spot to eat. And I mean, Um, I would assume like, I could be totally wrong, but I tend to think with Street and Company and and Forest Street, they've obviously adapted, but fundamentally haven't changed that much since when they, so to picture having Street and Company in the mid nineties seems (laughs) like wild. Um, Yeah. And there were a bunch of, there were a bunch of spots like that in in uh Portland at the time, like that you could walk to. I mean, Uh from my apartment in town, I could walk to like five or 10 phenomenal restaurants and really cool beer bars. I mean, even like from a beer bar perspective in all the way through the the 90s and even into the early 2000s, a lot of big cities, they had like maybe two really like killer legendary beer bars. Mm. Um, Portland, I mean, you could basically walk to a bunch of them. Three Dollar Dewey's is around back then. Of course, the Great Lost Bear, our first tap line was there then. I mean, there were a ton of, uh, a, a ton of like just early adopters yeah. and supporters. Um, I mean, like up in Brunswick, my buddy TJ had Joshua's and Benzoni's and they had amazing, I mean, Joshua's had this amazing draft selection <laughs> and there were a bunch of places like that. So it just seemed like a, a for as small a community as it was of like, depending on where you draw the line, a hundred or so thousand people, 
yeah. in that small an area there, it just seemed like there was so, going to be so much support for uh-huh. what I was planning to do. Mm. Clear, yeah, good call, <laughs> I think. And I think that that's a good transition into... I've kind of heard you maybe allude to allude to it, but just for the absolute true, um, uh, what is it, Sisyphus, whatever. I'm, I tried to do this before. I'm sk- I'll skip it. <laughs> true uphill climb. I'll leave it at yeah. um, uh, Herculean task. I'll keep it mm-hmm. keep it myth. Um, but basically, introducing the world to Allagash White was, um, and it. it I, I guess when I say elude, it seems like almost reading between the lines, it almost sounds like very hard to picture this story unfolding in any remotely similar way to how it has anywhere else but Portland. Be- for, for those reasons you're mm-hmm. saying, just sort of, mm-hmm. even though it was still so alien to have a hazy beer <laughs> back then and a, Bel- a hazy Belgian beer. Um, and I'm not, I'll, I'll let you uh, <laughs> use the proper adjectives for all that. But um, compared to, you know, XYZ City, it was still probably, uh, in retrospect, a lot more accepting than other places would have been. Yeah. Th- uh, and there's a, there's a lot there, again, to like unpack, like stuff, yeah. <laughs> uh, like running around through my brain. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and remind me to get back to that maybe it would have been accept, accepted in other markets, because I think that is actually an important part of our history. You know, not that Portland didn't em, embrace it. They definitely did. But so there's and, and, you know, also remind me to talk about it. Back then, there was really only two models. There was a, either a brew pub model or a wholesale model. Yeah, there, yeah. Really, the yeah. taste room model didn't exist. But, you know. As far as however you know, however you want to characterize it, up uphill battle. Uh, I mean, it definitely was for the first ten years. I mean, we couldn't. I couldn't That's give give out. It, it really was. <laughs> but there's this weird part of me that that's kind of why I wanted to do it. Uh-huh. Like I kind of like the. There's something that excites me about taking the hard path, like the uh-huh. hard road, um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to brew. A beer like this, uh, it was it was really really important to me to give people a unique experience with beer. Um, I, I didn't see the point in taking a year of my life to cobble this brewery together with a bunch of dairy equipment. And I knew I'd be doing the work. It was on a we, I didn't have much of a budget at all when I started. I cut the drainage trenches in the floor, did a ton of the plumbing, did some electrical work, uh, did a bunch of the welding, the rigging. Um, so I knew I'd be like cobbling. It would take a while to put this put this thing together. I got an old McDonald's cooler, built that. I herniated a couple of discs. I, that, building that, that low low budget. Um, like, yeah, ended up with back surgery two years after. Um, but I didn't see the point in basically going to all that work and then maybe even running this thing for my life, mm-hmm. only to make something people could already get. Like, what's the point? Mm. I knew I could I knew there were other beer styles I could brew where we could sell a lot more beer like right out of the gate. Um, But I just I wasn't that like like it kind of gets back to the the passion thing. If it's Mm -hmm. not something I'm passionate about, 
Uh, I'm going to get restless. I'm not going to be able to stick with it. I'm just not going to be able to do it. And I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to be different. I I never looked at it as like a niche, like, oh, this is something Hmm. that's going to be huge in 15 years and I want to be the first one in it. Hmm. I never looked at it like that. Um, I was pretty realistic at the time and thought that I'm probably never going to be able to sell a lot of this, but you know, I want to do something different. Um, so that and I really looked at the Belgian beer um, brewing tradition as an opportunity to give people something different with, you know, give beer drinkers something different. I mean, in a pretty small country, I mean, if you're in Brussels, you can basically drive a few hours in any yeah. direction and get anywhere in the country. But there's this like unbelievable, like mind boggling diversity. I don't have to tell either of you. There's just mind boggling diversity of beers. I mean, it's like almost anything is fair game from an ingredient perspective. So I kind of thought if I brew beer in these, in this tradition, you know, it's probably going to be an uphill battle because people have never, very few people have had these flavors. Um, they may not seem at first blush super accessible, even though I'd, I'd actually argue they are. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I just looked at it as this like literally unlimited palette Mm -hmm. of raw materials, brewing techniques, equipment, um, to give people an unlimited experience with beer. And it's like delivered that. I mean, we're, we're still, we can get into the, uh, pilot beer program at the brewery at, at some point, but I mean, we're still you know, not even close, I don't feel like, to running out of ideas that fit squarely in this Belgian brewing tradition. Was there much of a struggle with that at all, or was was that a given? The idea that you're going to start this, you're going to commit your life to it, in the macro sense, the understanding of, I want this to be unique, I need this to be different, to, to keep my fire lit, to give something special, makes a ton of sense at face level, but then you talk at the idea if, if it's this style or it's that style, we're going to be able to sell a lot more of this. There's, there's a more functional business early. Was that an internal struggle at all? Or were you committed to that, to the unique experience just from the onset and it would go no other way? It probably became more of an internal struggle after four or five years when the reality <laughs> set in that like Jesus. people really don't want to buy this beer. I mean, after three this or four years. of the hill is a little steeper than I thought. Yeah, exactly. The hill was steeper than I thought. And uh, I mean, we didn't sell as much as we thought. It, the acceptance was way slower than I thought. We didn't have any, I didn't have any beer reps back then. I think the first uh, beer rep I hired was Naomi, who's amazing, wow. and she's now our national sales mm, director. Mm. Um, but, you know, for the first 12-ish years, at, at least, maybe a little more, you know, it was it was just me. And, like, I can't tell you how many times, hundreds and hundreds of times, although maybe not hundreds of times because you didn't have that many draft lines, but I'd walk into places and I'd be like, you know, Maybe a spot in Boston, you know, how's it, how's it selling? How's things going? They'd be like, well, you know, (laughs) out of our 10 lines, it's the second to slowest, but like, you're a nice guy and you come in every once in a while. So I'm going to keep it on. And it's like, it just not too encouraging. Yeah. Uh, A ton of time on the road. And, you know, you mentioned um, just this market. It it just wasn't enough to support it. There Uh were these two models basically back then. I mean, there was the... 
and I'm oversimplifying a little, but there was like, you could either start a brew pub where people came to your spot to eat and drink, or you can do a production like wholesale brewery and, and sell to distributors. The tasting rooms, like no one visited me for 10 years. Yeah, I don't think you're oversimplifying. Very, yeah. very few people visited. So, you know, the, it, you know, and to add insult to injury, people didn't pay much for beer back then. Yeah. So <laughs> we were in a situation where, I mean, we were selling beer to distributors. Like my first price to distributors was $16 a case. Oh. And when you think of it nowadays, I mean, in a tasting room model, you're selling beer for at least 100 bucks a case. That's a four pack. I mean, for a yeah. lot of beers. I mean, I don't have an inflation calculator in front of me, but say the nine, say, say inflation's doubled. Which it's probably an accurate thing. So, I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. Barking. Affordable four pack <laughs> like at a brewery. I mean, yeah. people are paying 18 bucks all day long for four packs, 20 bucks. Yeah. So, but a $30 uh, equivalent case basically is, yeah. I mean, it's, Inconceivable, yeah, absolutely inconceivable. It me. was a, it was a huge like reality check after, and just this, you know, I don't know if there were enough people in Maine for that tiny a category and that unaccepted category. So I just started opening states like crazy uh -huh. for for better or for worse. Uh, I mean, knowing what I know now, I maybe would have come at it differently, but we came at it how we came at it, and I ended up in thirty states. Like just to, I mean, if you're only making like fifty cents a case. You got to sell a lot of cases. <laughs> and you volume. need a lot of states. Yeah. yeah. So wow. Since pulled back, which is you know comes later, a decade later in the story or so. But you know, that's how how long did it take to go from one to thirty states? Not that long. I mean, we over the first three or four years, we probably went from one to three states. And I never thought I'd sell beer outside of Maine. Yeah. yeah. One of the reasons I chose the name Allagash is I wanted a name that would resonate with Mainers. Sure. So I was like, I'm never going to sell beer out of the state. I want a name that resonates with Mainers. So one of the reasons that I chose that name, a buddy, a good college buddy of mine came up with it. One of my buddies who led to me landing in Portland, gotcha. actually. Gotcha. Um, what was the question? I just I got my brain How long is, it took to go from? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So probably over the first three years, we ended up in like three states. Uh -huh. But between years three and I'm just going to guess seven, we probably went from three to 30 states. And believe me, like uh, we had no representation except for me. And I did have uh, some great brokerage uh, arrangements. So, um, in, in the, these arrangements, they still exist. They were, uh, more popular at the time, but I uh, had some great relations with brokers who represented a number of beers. Um, can you but, explain that? A yeah. I don't, I guess I don't quite understand what you mean. Yeah. So basically you have a rep in, or, or you have a company who represents your beer in a number of other beers. Um, in a sales capacity, not a distributor capacity. So they're like your sales reps, but you don't have like the full overhead of that sales rep. You just kind of pay that rep per case. Okay. So, so if that all... rep sells five cases, they get, you know, 25 cents a case or whatever, then I don't know. I don't remember gotcha. what the number is. Um, so it was a way for us to have like some representation because we were spread totally. so thin. And of course I was out <sighs> on the road you know, constantly the first, uh, over the first eight or so years, I never spent more 
than $29.99 on a hotel room. I only stayed in Motel 6s. Um, I just, I had no, I had no, or very lean travel budget, Motel but I did a bunch of travel. It. Not yeah, yeah. more than two cases of beer <laughs> for a hotel room. Yeah, tonight. yeah. But I mean, I was spread thin. I wasn't uh, working with our distributor partners on pricing for any of our items. We weren't shipping really? cold. Oh yeah, no. I mean, how do you do it when you have like, 15 different SKUs um, and 30 distributors. Like I can't, I don't have enough hours in the day to, to, to work with them on pricing. Probably the beer wasn't getting rotated. I wasn't getting, I mean, that was back in the days where the, the bigger distributors who could pay their bills, they wouldn't even call me back. Uh-huh. I mean, I just basically would call around until someone agreed to like shrug and take the beer. <laughs> and I mean, I'd get paid 60 days, 90 days, over 120 days. Um, so our accounts receivable was a disaster. Also I mean, it was your a, it was job a, to rectify the books. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of a, it was kind Jesus. of a disaster. And by, by, uh, say 07 or so, 06, 07, I was like, I don't want to do business like this. I mean, our beer isn't rotated. We're not working with our distributors on pricing. We're not probably, um, I mean, some markets, we didn't even have brokers. We had no rep- representation at all. And I basically said, we were, we were literally, the. if you look up in the dictionary, the definition of a mile wide and an inch deep, yeah. like, that was us. Yeah. We were doing everything marginally. And I was like, I don't want to do business like this. And we decided we were gonna like go deep in markets that were relevant to us. Mm-hmm. Wherever we were, we, we had traction and we're selling beer. And luckily I had the luxury of doing that by 06 or 07, because that's when the brand finally, after a decade, started getting traction. Yeah. After just like years of grinding it out, after, you know, I'm sure the introduction of beer like beers like Blue Moon that kind of made cloudy beer okay. You know, importers were pushing Belgian style beers. Name the reason, it was probably a litany of reasons. Our beer started popping. And rather than like just purely riding that wave and, and shipping to all the states that wanted to carry it, we decided we only want to ship ship to areas where we felt like we were relevant and we within a few years could be doing like a phenomenal job like on all fronts supporting the beer pricing cold shipping cold storage um rotating like all of that stuff we wanted to be able to control all of those things i mean that's we can talk about i'm sure we'll get back to that because that's such a huge just scary decision to make at such a pivotal time. But it was kind of scary because we were walking away from sales. I mean, it wasn't as if the brand was like really on fire. I mean, this is back in 07, we were probably making five or 6,000 barrels a year. So, you know, it's not easy to I just walk away from a market. I, I no, that's what makes it so amazing to take that time when you finally are getting traction. Okay, this... This years of hard work that that was so not fulfilling at times. And to be frank, I don't know where you one of my questions was going to be when you're not getting outside feedback to give you the energy to keep the fire burning. How how were you able to keep that fire burning yourself to just give yourself internal energy reserves when people are telling you 
what's wrong with that beer? <laughs> yeah. What's why is that beer cloudy? I mean, maybe I'm just I'm just like bullheaded. I mean, I'll just keep going until something stops me. Mm. I, I think that's my only explanation because mm. I do get asked that, and I don't really have. A clear answer but i'll just like keep going until like something completely stops me so i just like kept going and then it worked out one day yeah. you know <laughs> if it's it, like a stock it holds forever <laughs> that finally pops yeah, yeah maybe. They got approval. <laughs> now that being said if things hadn't you know we were at that point starting to get to kind of like a, a tipping point with delivering results and if things hadn't started to move um within another year or two of that you know i don't know if we'd still be around i mean for sure the first 10 years no one was asking me to do like interviews and podcasts and in interested in the beer it was more if like, anyone asked you to do a podcast in 2005 then yeah no one was like no one was in no one was really interested the mm -hmm. articles were like few and far between back then um, I, I guess just to focus it on that that beer that is hazy, um, bring it into into white territory in this this critical kind of crux point, I guess, or maybe in retrospect it looks like that. How firmly was white like the true heartbeat flagship in every sense of the word of the company as it is now, or did that kind of change the course of that and accelerate that? Um, I guess at white share the pie. It it's always been the flagship, you know, originally not by design, I guess. It just happened to be the first beer we brewed, but like more by default. And, you know, it's, it's still, I mean, it's, it's still growing. Like our, we're very pleased with our trends now. I mean, obviously COVID has been a very odd year, mm. um, but we, have never we had prior to COVID we had never done much in the off-premise to use like a uh, um, industry, industry sales term, term off-premise meaning like supermarkets, C stores, independent you know liquor stores, chain liquor, whatever. Um, but in that like off-premise, basically the bottle and can um, format, we'd never we'd never done much with our white beer. I mean, you could basically. Two and a half years ago, and this is like 24 years into running the company, you could only get it in a four-pack of bottles. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things COVID, and we were moving in this direction anyway, but COVID just like dramatically accelerated it. Now you can get the white beer in a 19-2 can, in a 12-ounce can 12-pack, in a glass six-pack, in a 16-ounce uh, um, can four pack so i mean we there's there's a lot of potential for the brand that we hadn't even explored and think we're very we're very pleased with uh the traction it's gotten in the off-premise you know we were pushed mm -hmm. with covid um but i guess to answer your question it just it won't slow down mm -hmm. you know have there been times that i've been like geez you know we've got a lot of eggs in that basket or it's a huge chunk of our business you know should we do something else that's like 50 percent of our sales do we talk about that occasionally yeah we do but like every time we look at depletions the white keeps growing and growing and growing and i don't i don't think we're anywhere near it's it's full potential so mm. like 
it's hard to it's hard to come up with stuff that ends up keeping up with it. Well, right, as it's so easy to want um, in theory, you know. All right, let's let's uh, create another beer that is you know represents twenty five percent of production. Like that's in reality, that's what brewers dream of being able to f- chase that dragon and, and nail that. I mean, that's the whole game in a lot of ways is finding beers that will resonate in that way. You can't you you can't. It almost happens to you, I think, more. And it's it's certainly from this from the sounds of your tone, that was kind of the kind of the way with 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 white. But I'm I'm surprised to hear you. I, I guess I, I I always assumed that it was kind of what the the brewery was almost built around, rather than. Well, it it was um, just because at the time it was the only beer I was being brewed, so <laughs> or I, I was being the only beer I was brewing, so. All of the equipment was made to make this beer. I mean, things mm. like the Lauderton, which was an old dairy tank. I was lucky enough to find a round, just uh, sloped bottom tank that, I mean, Lawrence was kind enough to se- sell me some false bottom material. I mean, I think he charged me for like 75 bucks, which was worth like far more than that. And I had just enough material to, to fit into this seven foot diameter Lauderton, but I made a Lauderton that would have a very, very um, shallow, shallow grain bed uh-huh. because I mean, I knew I was gonna be making beers with um, raw wheat, um, malted wheat, which of course wheat doesn't have a lot of husk husk material, so it's it's tough to get a fluffy grain bed and oats. Mm-hmm. So I mean, a, a lot of the components, well, really all the components of the brew house were designed around making that beer. Um, so you know, honestly, I wasn't I wasn't thinking ahead a whole lot at the time. I just I was kind of like, this is the beer I'm going to brew coming out of the gates. So I'm going to design a brewery around it and. It just, it's always, it, it's ended up being our flagship. Um, I'm super happy about that because it's <laughs> like my favorite thing like in the world to drink. Like I still, I love drinking it. I I get, you know, the crew at the brewery gives me a lot of shit because, I mean, we have all these wonderful beers. And yeah. I mean, I'll walk up to our tap selection in our tasting room. There'll be like 15 beers on tap and... They don't ask me what I want. They just pour <laughs> me white. a white beer. You know, I, it, it, it never gets old. And I mean, it's gotten a hell of a lot more consistent than when I started. I mean, when I started it, it tasted like I wanted, wanted it to taste and look like what I wanted it to look 10% of the time. I mean, I was uh-huh. brewing on this old, this dairy equipment. Um, now, I mean, it's right up. To you know, I mean, Jason, our brewmaster is amazingly capable, and our whole team is, and it tastes like I want it to taste like a hundred percent of the time. Uh-huh. I mean, when I drink, when I drink this beer um, that I'm about to dive into, <laughs> I'm going to do it right with by you. The way, I don't mean I'm, to interrupt, I'm but. digging the substance. This is drinking great. Um, I'll, I'll do. I'll drink a white beer next. It, it still tastes exactly, and I remember what it, you know how like flavors yeah. stick mm-hmm. with yeah. you, smells stick with you. Um, when I drink it now, it tastes like exactly like it tasted in 1995 when it was tasting like what I wanted it to taste mm-hmm. like, if that makes sense. It, it absolutely does. And, and I, I, I didn't know exactly how to ask you this cause I, I didn't, um, yeah, just the different context, but for us with, with substance and, and I'm not, 
at, at all try, trying to link those beers together <laughs> at whatsoever. I want to make that clear. But it was a on uh, hearing you talk, I couldn't help but laugh. It's like, oh, yeah, we were draft only for not a full year, but for the nearly half of one and only making this one beer so entirely different context yada yada but um in that first year for me and especially not to mention you know the two years of homebrewing leading up to it of kind of letting this beer kind of crystallize um you know almost every batch was tweaked um and i i know the probably physical limitations consistency limitations of of the equipment would will factor into this but in kind of over the over the life span of of Allagash White like how much has has tinkering played a role mm. in beyond the obvious like scaling of brew houses and and all that so the first year or so, six months to a year, I absolutely tinkered like with the recipe itself, like with the final outcome, like flavor wise, appearance wise, like I was I was tinkering with it. Um, since then, like, you know, we I well, I guess it was just me at the time. I got to a <laughs> point where I tinkered it tinkered with it to the point where mm. it was exactly how I wanted it, what I envisioned um, when we were able to get that like consistent mm-hmm. outcome. Mm-hmm. Like the outcome wasn't so consistent, but mm-hmm. um, when I finally got it, like this is this is how I want it to taste and look. And you knew. Um, yeah, I, I uh-huh. did. I knew. Uh-huh. Um, after that, it, it hasn't changed at all, with an important exception. You know, as you grow and as time goes by, like the equipment we use changes, the ingredients change. Um, so, I mean, one thing, just weird, interesting thing, I mean, the coriander seeds back in the 90s, for some reason, were a lot bigger in diameter than they are now. <laughs> so mm. you got to use different quantities of coriander. The huh. coriander's just gotten a little, it, it, it is gotten a little more uh, pronounced. It, it gets more pronounced as the grain diameter. Probably like a lobster or, 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 or oyster, you know, Probably, same kind of deal. Yeah. Of so like- you have to, you know, dial down the number of pounds you use to get that same outcome. Yeah. And, you know, our, our, at this point, I mean, our, our, uh, process and equipment is is it's more sophisticated than i ever would have imagined in a million years i mean we have seven full-time people in our lab and you know very Mm. knowledgeable people on staff and um we look at all of our inputs all the time so we're doing we're looking at analysis on every single one of the malts we get every single one of the hops we get just every all of our inputs we have specs and you know it's a it's an agricultural product right so it varies a little year to year so we have to tweak our recipe depending on what the inputs are and depending on how equipment changes to get it to taste like just like it did taste um back in you know the mid 90s when it when it was just like i wanted it Mm -hmm. if if that makes sense no it absolutely does and that's um yeah just such a what and i'll throw this out there i'm sure you will not have any answers for for this but i res- mostly just respect you but i'll say i envy you tremendously in one way and um <laughs> that's also been been talked about plenty on this but but i you know it's it sounds so contradictory but i 
and very proud of our beers. And I know that I have the propensity to like them, but I have a very hard time cracking a substance and enjoying it for what it's supposed to be. It's just a beer. I have a very, very hard time separating, I guess, myself mm. from the like the endless amount of things you can be self-critical about. Then you can do nothing about it at that moment. It's like, this beer is yeah. this beer right now. Yeah, you can. Um, and I, I wonder if that was ever a struggle for you. It, it, it seems to just be so natural, your relationship to that beer. You know, I mean, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't. I haven't thought of it so much in that context, <laughs> except when it's ta- when it is drinking the way it should be drinking. To me, it is kind of just a like an air quotes beer to me. Uh-huh. I don't know. I'm just happy. Like I'm in a uh. good place. If it's just right. If anything's not right. Like, I don't want to say I come unglued, but what? Uh, like, I mean, I, I remember a time Jason remembers like five or six years ago in California, I was drinking it and it was not drinking how I wanted it to drink. And there was a reason it was something like 60 days old. And I immediately called Jason. I'm like, dude, we got to fix this. Like, yeah. we have to fix this. I don't know how we do it, but we need this beer to be like, I mean, white beer is at its best when it's fresh. And we literally worked for like years on our supply chain to get the beer like fresh, you know, everywhere. And our sales team works on it. Our production team works on it with production planning. Um, Our, you know, shipping and order department work on it. I mean, we know, we know how many days on hand for every white beer keg, or, or all of our white beer half barrels, white beer five gallons, we know how many days on hand every single one of our distributors have right now. Like I could call wow. Dave right now or or Don or Donnie and be like, how many days on hand How's that 46 does day our Chicago all distributor way, have? All the way through the entire... Through the whole system, yeah. Jeez. Um, so if something's, it's just, uh, my point is like, if something's not right with the beer, I won't rest until we can get it right. It's like really important for it to be right. But when it is right, I'm in a happy, relaxed, uh-huh. not overly, an- like, I'm really just enjoying it. Like, I oh. hope our customer, like if someone's paying for that beer, I hope they can just like relax and enjoy it and just like experience it. And that's certainly um, and that's what I hope for. Happy place that I'm in, you know. <laughs> but, if, but if something's not right, I'm not in my happy yeah. place. Um, well, there's a lot for me to chew on, uh, <laughs> but between those lines there, in terms of why I've, I guess I've never been able to firmly live in that happy place. But uh, in terms of when it when it's not right from a, uh, it, well, first I, I do want to say quickly, I've noticed even in my relatively small about a decade of drinking that beer. The shelf stability, I've seen that go just, not that I'm always searching out old Alcash White, <laughs> and you don't have to. In Portland, you're you're set, basically. But, um, you know, every now and then, especially, honestly, up in Milo, if I'm at the grocery store up there, I might grab, you know, maybe it's a little bit older, but it doesn't, I've found, it. I don't even really need to think about it anymore. Yeah, that three-week white tastes, to me, about as good as it can taste, but... I don't know. I, 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 whatever, you, whatever you set out to fix, I think you can consider it fixed. Cause, um, but 
on the on the other side of things. And, and you know, I'm, oh, ha- I'm happy to hear that. Oh, and yeah. It is like amazing the amount. I mean, we put so much work and thought and focus into that outcome. And it's funny because the outcome itself, if it is tasty great, you just you do kind of take it for granted. Yeah, and maybe even right. I take it for granted. But there's just been a lot of hard work and effort on a lot of people's front at the brewery, like to get it like that. I mean, we look at a lot of things at a lot of different points with like every single batch of beer, like all, everything has to be right. Cause even to that point, even more subtle things, like I've noticed over the years and it, it I'm probably sounds like I'm just kissing up, but I'm, I'm really not. I, I like most people in, in the Portland brewing industry drink a lot of Allagash White. And um, even just the haze stability, something that that's certainly, yeah, I'm sure of factors into the palate, but is largely an aesthetic thing. Even that, you know, age doesn't seem to to ding that. And I've never had like a clear by any stretch, but, you know, you'll get more stratification. And I just even see that less and less. So, um, you know, I feel like it's probably not even worth being like, what was the secret? Because it's, as you kind of said, it's a million, it's a million little things. Uh, that, yeah, it's that, like uh, a lot of consistent consistency things, QC things, understanding, you know, uh, when elements of our supply chain, like the malts, when the specs move around, understanding the impacts that that's going to have on, you know, yeast health during fermentation, haze stability, you know, flavor profile, just understanding all those things. And then some of the other things that don't at first blush seem like QC things, but they are with just understanding your supply chain, making sure you're brewing like just enough beer so you don't have so much that the codes are getting drawn out, you know, making yeah. sure that you're shipping it to the distributor cold, making sure the distributor's uh, uh, storing it cold, making sure your distributor's rotating it, just like all of those things. And now you got that big like, brother system on them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a way to check, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, on just one, yeah. one last thing on on beers, and then I'll I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll stop talking, but. Um, <laughs> The the relationship White has to th- mm. the other like I guess core beers of Allagash and and certainly maybe the, like the older older school more established core beers something like Double you know I've I've often wondered it's a beer beer I love and but probably like most people it's not something I stock my fridge with all the time um, I've had certainly an admiration for what clearly would be a discrepancy in sales force or, or vigor or whatever has not forced any of these beers away for one. But for two, it's like, okay, it's still a business. Like I, I, I've wondered who the, 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 the market is for beers, like, like the, the definable market, I should say for beers like triple double, um, even black and maybe how that's has to have changed over time. I mean, it, you know, it it constantly evolves. The double we did give a rest. I mean, that was the second beer I brewed. Mm-hmm. I love that beer. We gave it oh, a rest. Pour one out um, for the double. That's too bad. <laughs> I was just craving that beer, like literally. Uh-huh. 
like five days ago, I texted Jason. I was like, we got to make it again. I and, was thinking about it because of we're talking. I was, I was, but the days leading up, I was like, I should grab some doubles. Yeah. So. And you know, maybe, maybe I'm spilling the beans, but we're going to brew it again. It'll probably be like a limited thing. Uh-huh. I don't know if it'll be called double. You know, it's funny. Um, <laughs> from a practical perspective, the name of a beer is important. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people, unless, you're in the beer business or you're a you know huge beer aficionado like what's a double i mean Why i have to explain to someone <laughs> well the trappist monks have been brewing beer in europe since the 1500s 1400 you know uh we've had a lot more luck with these like experiential names yeah um so I don't know if it'll come back with the name Double. There might be like a more experiential name we feel like that like speaks to the ex- to the experience of this beer or like the history of this. You know, it's obviously got a really rich yeah. history. Mm. Like I get, I love like starting to talk about history of like the white beers and the Trappist beers. And um, so I don't know if it'll have the same name, but you know, w- we are the beers other than the white. And it's funny because the last week or so i've been drinking a lot of these two new beers that um i'm loving and i oh i didn't bring one of them for you guys i did i did bring the other one fine acre uh which is our first organic beer oh and uh it's got a different yeast strain than our house yeast strain and i was just saying to jason um that i've said it a couple times like i don't know what it is about this beer i'll pour it and like smell it and and drink it. I'll be like, I feel like I'm back in Belgium right now. Oh. I mean, I drink so much of the white. Yeah. To me, it just. I mean, the it's like here. it's like beer, right? <laughs> I've been here. drinking it yeah. for 25 years, but I drink the Fine Acre. It's got a different yeast strain. Huh. It's just a different experience than our beers. It's just got this really cool classic Belgian flavor. I I did bring you that Fine Acre, so mm-hmm. I've been drinking that lately. We just released a beer. I don't know if it's on the shelf yet called Nowaday. Um, it is a, a nice beer name. that uses our house yeast, but um, it, it we do a, a much colder fermentation with it, so the yeast expresses itself much differently. Mm-hmm. Been loving that beer. Um, but, you know, we were just talking about this today. I mean, the market's pretty, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's <laughs> like arguably too much innovation, maybe. Yeah. There's a lot on the um, shelf. When does it stop um, being innovation? Yeah, you know, yeah. I think is the, is what it what it comes down to. But you know, l- 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 I'll get back to the whole Belgian beer brewing tradition. We have this amazing tradition that we've been working kind of within for the last 25 years. That's got like this unlimited. Uh, unlimited palette of raw materials, unlimited palette of yeast strains and brewing techniques. You know, we just, the ideas keep coming. We've, we've got a program at the brewery where anyone at the brewery, doesn't matter what department they're in, you know, accounting, sales, production, warehouse. I mean, you name it. If you have an idea for a beer, you can go to the pilot team and brew a beer on this little How many um, employees 10 now? gallon system. 150 employees at the company about. Um, and I mean, I think we're brewing at least a hundred unique beers a year on this system Still, and they wow. just keep coming. I mean, it's not, and in fact, I think the pilot team would tell you there's like a backlog of requests and ideas to brew on this system. So the, I, there's going to be no shortage of 
of new of new beers that we're rolling out. I mean, we're trying to like control ourselves because there's so many ideas. But <laughs> I am. I mean, the White's our flagship for sure. Um, probably always will be. And it probably will always be like my favorite thing to drink. I mean, it has been for 25 years. But <laughs> Why change it now? There are just some really cool, um, I guess I'd call them like beer experiences, which we're delivering that I'm like, thought, super speak, excited I, about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but speaking of experience and taking it outside of just a liquid in a glass, I think. Just saw the, I think the Fine Acre, you said it's called? Yeah, the Fine Acre. Just the getting posted beer. in the last couple of days. And something that coming with a, a gardening kit or a an experience around something like that, does that ring a bell? It rings a bell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got too too much go, going on right now. No, I mean, no. I'm telling I, you, this whole COVID thing. But good. it's those things that jump at you and t- you, yeah. you see in my feed all day being a beer professional. You. You yeah. go like this and you see gorgeous pictures of beer from yeah. thousands of breweries all over the country. And you get a little bit of attention. You're reading a couple copy words. But when you're moving fast, you're moving fast. And when you see something like that, not only a beautiful picture, but then this this different experience around it. And like really get into it. Get your hands into it. Have it, have it be something more than just a liquid in a glass. That's what makes that stick out with the other thousand posts I saw of yeah. new beers today. You know I what will I mean? say, I mean, our, the photography is amazing. We do yeah. it all in-house. Yeah. And it is, like, amazing. Um, we, it, it makes me, like, crave the beers that, that, that end up on our Instagram feed and, and uh, Twitter feed. But I wanted to kind of take it out of the, um, out of the product side and, and into mm. the other side a little bit when... I talk to people about Allagash, or they talk to me. It's it's two things. It's the incredible product um, that you explain these these points in the in the journey where you have an option to grow or to do other things mm. or to double down on investing in the product and making sure it's right and all of the processes and all of the people that result in that product being right at the end point where it touches a consumer. And then you have the other thing that everybody talks about, and we've even talked to people on this podcast, when, the culture of Allagash. Mm. And it's synonymous with, with the thing that everybody else is trying to reach. And when you, you get into the, a lot of these things, and we've interviewed other people who are good at it, and I, I take in other podcasts all the time where I'm trying to learn about it, and there's the talking points are kind of easy, right? And in hindsight, 25 years later, there's oh, you, you, the ethos and the core values and you care about your people. And, but to, to have somebody so just everybody that works at that company is viciously happy to tell you about it, to spread that gospel with you. And, and I'm try, I was thinking of like, how can I get on this microphone and drag out the different pieces <laughs> than just the talking points? From Rob, and I want to circle back to the to the thing you said when after a bunch of years of kind of grinding through this, nobody buying the beer and having some dark days, you start to have the tide turn in your favor. The beer starts to move. Everything starts going great. I think you're in 30 markets at that point. And at that exact moment is when you say, you know what, let's pump the brakes and let's go <laughs> deeper on where we matter and why and, and those sorts of things. Can you take me back to that moment a little bit and, and kind of explain how you get to a decision like that that I think for a lot of people would be the counterintuitive one? Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think it, it's more important for me to be like very happy about things like, well, I mean, like quality. Mm -hmm. Like I want, it's way more important for me to have someone, and I mentioned that beer I drank in LA where like the quality wasn't there because yeah. we weren't looking at things like a lot of things like rotation and, um, you know, code and cold shipping and just all that stuff. I mean, I, I don't care how much beer we're brewing. If someone told me right now, you know, you could make half a million barrels in, I mean, we're making 100,000 barrels now, which I never thought in my wildest dreams we'd make. I've never been volume driven, but mm -hmm. I, I never thought we'd we'd be making 100,000 barrels. Um, but if someone said, you know, like in five years or 10 years, you can be a half a million barrels, but you're going to have to, you know, there's going to be a bunch of beers you're not going to be happy with out there. I'd be like, no way am I taking that deal. You know, I, you know, it's just much more important for me for things to be right. Like for the beer to like, present the way it should be presenting and like drinking the way it, it should be drinking and for the quality to be there. And then these other things that are like really, really important to me. And pro honestly, I'm sure we trade off growth in a lot of ways because of it. You have to. Although in some ways the growth delivers it. Mm. But uh, things like community, our philanthropy program is really important to me. Um, I mean, I, you know, it just, we have the pediatric nurse scholarship fund at, at Maine Medical Center. And it's just like, it really just feels good to me to be able to hand them a check for, you know, $25,000. So totally. nurses in this community um, can, uh, you know, learn their trade and come back and contribute to the community. I mean, it just feels really good to be a to be a part of that, um, to be a part of our million pound grain initiative. Mm. Um, I mean, we're four years into that now. We're on the fifth year. Last year, I think we bought in the neighborhood of three quarters of a million pounds of main grown and processed, you know, in, in a lot of cases malted um, grains. And I think we're going to be able to pull it off this year. It's going to cost us a lot more money than if we had just bought bought the grain totally um uh from you know thousand miles two thousand miles away it would cost us a lot less to do that but um it's it's really gonna feel good if we can actually pull this off to be able to support the community and the economy in that way um you know and you mentioned like pe people at the brewery it's like really important for me to be for people to be happy when they come into work. I mean, it's one of the reasons I got into beer in the first place is yeah. because, you know, I dreaded ending up in a career where I wasn't happy. Yeah. And when I found beer, I immediately knew like, this is something that can make me happy. And I want everyone to feel like that when they, when they come into work. And um, I mean, you, you probably know we've been a certified um, B Corp. B Corp for uh geez the uh the years are starting to um get clouded with this whole covid thing but uh, you know <laughs> it's maybe in the year and a half uh, the last ish, year ish, yeah the last <laughs> year but i mean I, i'm really really proud of that and i'm really looking forward to 
you know, I, I don't care so much about the B Corp score like in and of itself, but I do care about it in that as that B Corp score improves, like I guarantee you we are going to be doing better with things that I'm like really passionate about. You know, we're going to be doing more for the community. We're going to be more sustainable and we are going to, you know, be uh, providing hopefully like a more fulfilling workplace. So, Mm. you know, employees, community environment, if we can do better on those fronts, our B Corp score is in, is improving. So can you, Matt, I I think is more versed in, in, precisely what a B Corp is. I mean, we've taken literally countless cues from, from Al Gash on both charity, really charity and local Sourcing. local agriculture would be, I would say, the biggest things, but then literally hundreds of other more nuanced things. I mean, but we have, yeah, the silo out there is all buck farms, grain, and um, the charity. I love those guys. Yeah. I, I, I was not there. <laughs> well, Matt, you know, I yeah. came down and visited the first time you I met at you the Milo um, at the Milo location yeah. after a trip up there. You had like, like a glow to you. You looked like you were a little off the ground. Mm-hmm. When I was yeah. up there? Oh, man. <laughs> coming, I, coming fresh off a bus. I felt, I felt like I had a glow. I mean, it's just amazing, like walking around in the fields of wheat, you know, that they were growing for us, like wheat as far as you can see. I was like, oh my gosh. That will become I can't that. believe like this is all going, like this has all been planted for our beer. I mean, yeah. you really feel like you're making an impact. And that just that just means a lot more to me than whether we're doing 100,000 barrels or 200,000 barrels. That's just yeah. like, I don't know. It just, well, that's in, never like in that regard motivated did, me or meant in, a whole lot so to me. So sorry to interrupt. In yeah. that regard, did the pledge have a tactical sense for these malt houses or grain farmers and things like that in terms of what it allows them to do with deploying capital and, and, and knowing that there's going to be a demand there and things like that? Only in that we were realistic that, we, I mean, we wanted to get to a million pounds and, and we felt like we could do it. But we also like completely understood there's like no infrastructure in place yeah. right now to do it. Um, you know, the the main farmers that are growing multiple multiple barley and wheat to our specs, they they haven't like grown these crops. Right. Multiple, as you say, keyword. Yeah. You know, I mean, you just can't turn this on overnight yeah. like a switch this is gonna take years mm. um we didn't yeah. know how many years it would take we figured five years was like doable if, if we pushed ourselves but we also knew like this wasn't just going to be like a year-to-year thing where you know year two we'd call the farmers and say okay this year we need a hundred thousand pounds and year three we call them and be like okay we need two hundred thousand pounds this year we knew this was going to take like a, a investments on their parts commitments on their parts commitments on our parts and investments on our parts and we would have to work together to put together you know work together to put a long-term plan in place to like make this happen totally you know unfortunately too as as you're probably aware there was a rough harvest mm. uh this last year and yeah. 2020 was not a good harvest yeah. and that's going to challenge our million pounds initiative um i don't i honestly don't know if enough was harvested to do it so we could be and we're talking about like dipping into like 2021 harvests like 
straight to the brewery. Is kind of what Matt's asking, does that factor in, like, are you um, beyond just, I guess, a verbal commitment, which I'd assume if it was that, you could just roll that over pretty easily with these people you have that relationship with. But going back to the B Corp thing, like, Hmm. what kind of, how does that, I would imagine it, it, it made sense for you guys because it, it almost, uh, it unlocked a lot of things and kind of actualized a lot of, or whatever, made a lot of things you were already doing more impactful. Um, so I, I'm this, curious about that as also yeah, a business owner. That's my big question. You, you, Allagash is synonymous with being good stewards. And I think we're at a point right now where the, the shareholder versus stakeholder conversation about businesses is getting a lot more attention. And, and I think for good reason. And just kind of specifically, if Allagash is known for being good stewards and the work that they do, what does the does that B Corp filing do for you yourself? Is it keeping you honest? Is it giving you a goal to strive for? What what is the thought in terms of of what it does for you? You know, I think one of the one of the biggest things it does for us is it's almost like a toolkit to mm. be able to do more and perform better on the stakeholder fronts. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, I agree with you. I mean, we looked at, we looked at becoming B Corp certified for like two, three, four, five years. Um, But it's a big commitment. I mean, it's a really thorough assessment you need to take. I mean, just going through the assessment, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a commitment. I looked at it as something that was like so aligned with what drives us mm-hmm. and what we've um, always been about and what I'm passionate about. So I was kind of like, I finally got to the point where I was like, this is a no brainer. And because these are all things we focused focused on, you know, we're going to easily qualify for this. Well, you know, you <laughs> ask why B Corp as I was going through and we were going through this kind of assessment process. One of the things that's like core to B Corp is like documenting things, having like written like documentation of initiatives that you have, you know, goals, initiatives, procedures. And one of the things that we were really pretty best in class with was saving water. I mean, we had been we had been at least measuring how much water we use. Per barrel, of, per barrel of beer that we produce for years. And we knew that we were best in class. Um, and that really even was a specific part of the B Corp um, assessment. Totally. But as I recall, I don't know if we even got any points for that at all because we didn't have like an actual documented plan right. with goals. Like we have a documented plan like to save water, like here's how we're measuring it, here's what our goals are. We didn't have this like written down and documented. We were just kind of tracking it. So one of the things, and I'm really pleased about this because I, I think we're doing better on all fronts, that B Corp really pushes you to do is to have like written programs, written documentation. Um, and then there's a community of other B Corp businesses. Who, who are some of them, if you don't I mean, mind? Patagonia is yeah. one of the big ones that we really admire. I mean, I'm wearing a Patagonia yeah. shirt here. You know, we, we, we buy a lot of Patagonia stuff. We're really... Um, 
you know, proud to be a to be a customer of them. And and they are they're a B Corp and they're really willing to share like best practices, especially yeah. with fellow fellow B Corps. And I think that's the general sense. King Arthur Flowers, another one mm, um, over in Vermont. Yeah. So it, it's been really, it, unfortunately, right after we got B Corp certified, like not the day after, but within a couple months after, um, COVID hit. Yeah. So that's derailed, you know, <laughs> uh, some of our plans to engage with with uh, with a lot of other B Corp companies. Awesome. I um, I think um, we're rolling up on a, on a lot of time. Don't want to take a ton of your time, but I, I have to ask, when it comes to all of those things, they seem to speak inherently to who you are. Just like for, for Patagonia, they speak inherently to who Avon is. And when it comes to scaling things like a product or scaling things like a, a beer or, or even practices, those can, scaling those things are not easy, I don't think anybody would say, but they're doable and, and they're possible. Scaling human beings is much harder to do. And or at I, least the culture they exist within. Yes, I know yeah. maybe we're not, nothing, <laughs> not nothing strange. But, but truly, to speak, that, that culture that resonates within Allagash that, that yeah. people talk about, to scale that over 10 people, 20 people, sure. 30, 40, 50, sure. When you start to get into numbers like 100 and 150, the, the difficulty that must come with that, I, I, without taking the credit that, it's, that I pass my ethos down to everybody, you know what I mean? It, it's hard to separate the individual from the culture within the company. And anybody who's able to create that, somebody like an Yvonne, is the last type of human being who's going to sit there and really tell you the secrets or tell you about because they're not the type of person who's going to take credit for that type of thing. Um, so, but, so I want to hear just in your own words, when you think about a great culture for 150 people, how have you been able to do that? And then I have one follow-up question yeah. to that. <laughs> I mean, I think if you're th- it's a good, really good question. I think if you're thoughtful, they don't have to be in conflict. Um, mm. But I think you do have to be thoughtful and, you know, I, I think it, it's, it, it takes a lot of work on a lot of people's parts. You know, one analogy might just be quality. I think, uh, you know this because you're in the business, but I get asked a lot for maybe people that aren't directly in the business. Well, doesn't your quality start to deteriorate as you grow? Well, it's like just the opposite. When I go back and look at the quality, when we were making 300 barrels a year on a bunch of like dairy equipment, and we only had one person in the lab, which was like me, and obviously my time was pretty limited, and we didn't have all the sophisticated equipment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the, the, the quality, Frankly, it wasn't great, the quality and consistency. Now, I mean, I couldn't be more proud of our quality and consistency. And one of the reasons we've been able to deliver that is with the volume we're doing now. I mean, the volume um, has afforded us the um, ability to invest a lot on those fronts, like invest in a really robust team, invest in state-of-the-art equipment, invest in... Um, you know, testing equipment in the lab that I never like dreamed will be yeah. able to. But the key is you have to be thoughtful about it and you have to invest in it because 
Um, there may be plenty of companies who wouldn't have made those investments and instead would have taken those resources and deployed them elsewhere, mm -hmm. like maybe directly to the shareholders and out of the company. Yeah. You know, we've deployed those investments like internally on quality. Um, and I think that the same thing uh, with with culture and with employees at the brewery. I mean, you have to be thoughtful about it. But the growth affords us like opportunity for you know better benefits, hopefully more opportunity. I mean, you you, you can kind of make your make your list. But I think as long as you're thoughtful about it and you're willing to invest in it, I mean, this comes down to in a lot of ways what what B Corp and, and Benefit Corporation, they're, they're different things. We won't get into that. <laughs> into that now. One of the things that makes it confusing, but it's kind of what it's all about is uh, you, when you make decisions and some decisions are just like investments or decisions might be like where you spend your time and like what you think about totally. and what you focus on instead of just focusing on the shareholders, which is what a lot of like traditional, especially publicly owned companies might do. Like you, you know, dedicate in investments, um, you know, where you're spending your, what you're, you know, what you're spending your time thinking about, you know, bandwidth, um, just what you're being thoughtful about, what you're investing in, in other things like the community, the employees, um, and sustainability, like if that makes sense. So I, I think the scale can actually work in your favor because like, like quality, you've got more um, that can be invested on that front. Mm. If, if you're thoughtful about it and you're willing to make that commitment. Totally. Well, just from as someone that, that probably part of why Matt brings that up is because he ends up a lot of times being my sounding board for just... You know, kind of, a, um, of course, he, he works at the company, but the distance kind of makes it, you know, a little more uh, objective. Yeah, exactly. Um, it seems like each year it's only gotten harder for us to maintain because on, on one hand, a thousand percent like our benefits are, are from a anything we can do with money it is better to be here as an employee than it has ever been. And I, I would say certainly, certainly not going up against you, but <laughs> better than the, the, a large majority of, of similar companies. Um, Matt's nodding, so I'll take that as something. Um, <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, as you know, you want loyalty, you want low turnover. We've been, we've been privileged to, to experience that like, quite a huge amount of it. We've had very, very low turnover here. But the longer people have been here and see sort of the different um, stages, I guess, of the brewery, for lack of a, it's kind of an over, oversimplification, but you battle with these feelings of people feeling like things have changed somehow in a fundamental way. And then you battle with new people kind of who just don't have an awareness or a real so much so much of it has early been early days so much yeah, of the early yeah, days yeah, was yeah. just feeling you know you didn't yeah. have to think about it, it all kind of just happened i mean i i occasionally you know, people will be like oh that must have been like so cool like in the good old days and i'm thinking <laughs> to myself the old days sucked man like <laughs> you we were getting paid in a hundred <laughs> days in and the beer wasn't consistent and I was getting called constantly because, uh, you know, our malt supplier wasn't sending us malt because we weren't paying our bills. I mean, there's like there's trade offs. Yeah, in exactly. 
exactly. life. I mean, mm-hmm. exactly. you know, working on the bottling line or the canning line, like it's a thousand times easier than it was like in the quote on, you know, air quotes, like good old days. I mean, things change like there's trade offs in life and hopefully the positives outweigh the detractors. But again, you, you know, you do have to be thoughtful about it because, I mean, like, even if I think of communicating at Allagash, in the in the and that's old, the word right there. Is yeah, communicating. I mean, the old days, I, you know, we didn't even need to write down our our core values and purpose and talk about what our plans were in a company meeting because I was out working on the bottling line for, yeah. for twelve hours and this stuff just everyone got it through osmosis. Yes. Yeah, but you know, fast forward to now, we have sales reps in scattered around the country in eighteen states. We have multiple shifts. We have. Uh, a couple different locations in Portland, the warehouse and the brewing. You just need to think of like, you just need to be thoughtful. Like, how do you communicate now um, when it's not just everyone around totally. the bottling line, and, like ta- asking questions all day and talking all day. And um, you just you just need to be, you know, thoughtful and creative. But the way I look at it as with this growth, now we have more assets to do those things. We need to do them differently. But if we're willing to make the investment, you know, instead of just pulling pulling those resources out of the company, mm-hmm. you know, and directing them towards the shareholders, if we're willing to make the investment, um, I mean, one of the ways we do it is in HR. We have like a really, really robust HR program at the brewery for full-time people. Um, it's a it's a big investment for a company of 150 people, but they're like, a, you know, a huge asset for us with on many, many, many fronts. And communication is just like one of them. Uh, one last thing before we, we end in and this hopefully will be very quick, but it's something I've wanted to ask you for a really long time. Um, totally kind of different thing. But when you talk about um, I've always it's always like stuck out to me when you when you talk about. You know, asking Jean Benoit, like, well, is it true that it can only be done here? And like, somehow there was this gigantic conspiracy that was created <laughs> that <laughs> pretended everyone. So what I want to know, because I can't think there was many, like, actual examples of people trying. How did he know it could be done elsewhere? Uh, good question. I mean, it, he maybe he, he knew it just because he had been doing that. For it just seems like twenty five so or twenty years at the time uh, himself, and he was a fourth or fifth generation brewer. But yeah, I mean, I was dumbfounded when he said that because I mean, everything that we had all read or been taught up to that point. I mean, this is back in '06 when I was over in Belgium with with a, uh, a few other brewers. Um, I mean, everything we have been taught is like, you can only do this in this one little area. Yeah. And we were talking about just that with Jean and he kind of looked at me like, he was like shaking his head. He's like, no, he's like, you can make this, you can do this anywhere. If you have the right temperature, uh, you know, the right temperature uh, conditions, the right equipment, you know, again, you know, we get back to being thoughtful about things, thoughtful about it. It's not going to maybe taste the same. Um, and again, this is one of these arts of making spontaneously fermented beers, you know, batch to batch is different, even within a batch, barrel to barrel is going to be different. Um, and of course, if you're brewing it in different locations, it's, it's going to be different, but 
it really did kind of create like and maybe almost like going back to the white beer i just kind of wanted the cha- the challenge mm-hmm. of uh-huh. like mm-hmm. you know they say it can't be done but <laughs> i certainly you know, go here's one yeah. like here's an expert that's telling me it uh-huh. can be done like let's give this a try but it, it honestly was pretty, I think Jason will echo this too, it was pretty scary doing it. I mean, this is <laughs> like, imagine. you make this beer with all of the microbes that basically every other brewer in the world, except for like 10 breweries in Belgium, are trying to keep out of their brewery. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's it was, it was daunting doing it and no one else was doing it in the country for a little while. Yeah. When, when it, it started working for us and the world got our word got around you like you some other, other brewers <laughs> did it um and i'm glad i'm glad they did um and you know it was never something we did that we thought we'd ever be doing like a ton of volume on it was more just like i wonder if we can like pull this off and <laughs> um you know our team does an amazing job making these making these beers and um the belgian brewers um like uh, Frank Bone and Armand at Dre Fontaine and, um, and uh, Jean at Cantillon. I mean, they've been nothing but like supportive and helpful. And mm. we've always been very careful with these beers to not call them. We, we don't use the words lambic. Yeah. We even avoid words like um, like Frambois, yep. um, just out of respect for their culture. I mean, we, we brew these beers you know, very much in the culture, but we respect those terms and their tradition and, and those brewers. Yep. And you or, think that's try part to. of why they've, they've been so willing to be so helpful, recognizing you know, the respect? Maybe, although they were helpful before we even <laughs> got to the point of True. what we were going to call it. They probably got the sense, though. Yeah. This, this maybe. is the kind of guy I can trust. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but I mean, we could we could keep you here for literally another another whatever many we won't. it's been. We won't. We won't. We won't this time. <laughs> you can. I'm not in a rush. <laughs> um, well, we have a fun little way we end it. The Mac Mac can set you up, and totally. then then we can kind of keep it. You know, a little little before you're absolutely ready to go, in hopes that you know we can do it again. <laughs> um, we call it the three bay. We have a serious conversation with people. We dive into a bunch of different topics, and then we like to end it with this very loose kind of free association that puts them on the spot. So we give you three things in one bucket, three in another, and then you put them together and you tell us why. They generally have to do with beer. Noah's can you tense. do this after a couple beers? You can. <laughs> Noah tends, I think you can. This is, okay. this is very Noah much in your Noah tends to be the world. mastermind of putting some really good categories together and it'll be your time to shine. I'm slow with games. <laughs> I'm a slow So learner. I was thinking of... Uh, you absolutely hold the record for the most Allagash Whites in an airport. Um, mm-hmm. So I was going to ask kind of an airport, like, but whatever. So instead, I'm going to hit you with um, three, let's say, known surf spots amongst three of us. So not you'll you'll know. And then I'm going to have you match um, any anything in the Allagash portfolio. Kind of if you want to look at it as maybe the ideal, the beer to drink after you endured or or enjoyed whatever depending on the on the For area any reason you want to match yeah. one up with that spot so, and why so i'll mm. give you you can pick the beers and I'll, I'll give you the spot so let's go um so let's start big let's go let's start with mavericks um yeah i mean you know so interpret it however you place you know i actually was near there once that i was out in san francisco 
and uh, good buddy of mine, Zeke. I need to. He he didn't text me back last the last time I texted him because um, he's not he's he, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he's not at Allagash anymore, and he actually wasn't when I when I surfed with him. Great guy though. Um, anyway, it was a big day, and we had planned to go surfing for a while, you know, leading up to this. There? And I was like, well, just anywhere. Any, and okay. I'm like, yeah. I'm not going out today. <laughs> like, no fucking way. I mean, we were driving down the coast and I was looking at the waves. I was like, no fucking way. He's like, well, I, you know, I've got a spot. I've got a spot. And he brought me to a spot actually near Mavericks. But the reason it was like survivable for us was that reef or whatever it is that makes Maverick break uh-huh. breaks the waves up enough. So we were just surfing, you know, little waist to chest high waves. So gotcha. it was it was survivable. Yeah, I drove long before I even knew that that was even a, a thing. On my honeymoon, actually, we were driving from San Francisco and actually uh, to Santa Cruz. And it was like a rainy, kind of windy day. And I remember driving by then, just like, holy fuck, that's some wild stuff. And then, you know, years later, realizing that, oh, yeah, that literal death hole I saw, <laughs> like, that's a known surfing location. It blew my mind. Yeah. Um, but uh, for, for the, uh, let's go with, um, keep in mind, I'm not a, I'm not a, a surfing aficionado. Sorry if I'm butchering anything, but let's go with pipeline in Oahu. Oh, so That's did I answer the, the Mavericks? No, we'll give you all the three and then yeah. you oh, can throw okay, them okay, Then you have okay, the full okay. pools at your disposal. Let's <laughs> yeah. go with pipeline in uh, North Shore Hawaii. And then um, let's keep it local. Yeah. Um, Higgins. Let's say Higgins. Let's say just a local, uh, yeah, good winter surfing spot from what I'm told. Okay, so for Mavericks, I'm going to go with like world on a string and i don't know mm. if you've had that beer i have that came have out it. of our pilot program i think that was that was heather muzzy the muzzmeister <laughs> um, <laughs> shout out muzzmeister i think that was muzzy and that's beer. how you get to that culture i right love there. that beer it's just like a really big beer like i love it you Bel- know it's belgian just like, yeast and it and yeah but it's it's like um it's it's a big, like on the sweeter side. Um, now I'm forgetting it, the cocktail. It was, it was named after, but it's if it's basically reminiscent. You know, it's a Sinatra tune, "World on a String," yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's reminiscent of mm. something Sinatra would have would have drank, like a whiskey drink, like yeah, a yeah. big, full flavored. That's amazing. A big, full flavored beer, and I'm like tasting the beer now, like malty. Like fruity, old fashioned. Uh, old fashioned. Yeah. yeah. Why am I forget? Why? How come I didn't remember old fashioned? It's like one of my <laughs> favorite seems drinks. Too odd, but yeah. But uh, but so, I'm thinking like world on a string is what I think. Just like those big, beefy, huge, like powerful waves. Totally. Just your your now life is on one. a string I for wish sure. I, I was actually craving that beer a, a very couple days ago one. for some reason. Like yeah. So is that ten barrel or uh, sorry, ten gallon only? No, 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 no. It's that was a beer we actually put. It started out on the gotcha. little pilot system. I was surprised Everyone there was that loved much info. It. <laughs> and uh, that one got at least distributed in the Northeast, if not nationally. Oh, yeah. But 12 ounce bottle. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Really cool beer. Um, I'm like struggling to think of one for Pipeline, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Higgins and. I'm thinking, you know, Higgins is it's like a different beach depending on I mean there's there's like the day when it's like a strong offshore breeze and snowing and you're like getting pelted into the face and the waves are like, you know, uh vicious and then there's like the chill 
uh, 80 degree day when you actually can go out in board shorts. But uh. one beer I've been going to uh, a lot after her Higgins surf sessions, and maybe it's because, you know, when I'm at Higgins, sometimes I have to go to like work or, yeah. um, I don't know, do something like productive. <laughs> You're still local. You still got the day. Uh, I'm going to go with any of the little groves. I mean, we do two little groves yeah. now. There's one, the peach and kombucha. Yeah. Um, one and uh, one of them, blackberry. But why am I forgetting? Yeah, it's not like you guys have many beers for you <laughs> yeah. to keep track of. Uh, the, 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 uh, I'm getting that. It's not blackberry. I unfortunately I have to confess some. I have I've been little the little grove beers have been one of those things now like, I gotta get, pick some of that up talking. and I actually haven't had had them yet blackberry oh, sounds right to me as someone I'm looking it up because it's gonna I should I can't believe that my brain yeah we just cut oh, black right currants one. black currants uh, why couldn't okay. I remember that I, 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 actually nah. it shouldn't be a surprise that I, I never trust it <laughs> after 25 years of the beer I never business trust black currants black currants <laughs> so like any of those little groves. I've been going Little Grove surfing Higgins, like regardless of the time of year. I don't know. Uh -huh, I just, I've uh -huh. been craving it after surfing. So I'm going Little Hell Grove yeah. with Higgins. Pipeline, obviously another place like Mavericks that I'm never going to get anywhere near. <laughs> you know, I'd probably get beat up if I, I didn't know how humongous it was there, but I guess I learned about both of these places in the same documentary. So yeah, <laughs> that probably it's like the reason. Big and fast and. Um, I don't, you know, maybe I would go, I don't know, maybe we, like True Penny. I don't know why True Penny Pills is like popping out at me. Oh, you know, I, I can. Refreshing beer. I think it's drink a be Drinkable. <laughs> but it's got this like, you know, it's, it's, it definitely kind of drinks like a pills, but it's got this like hint of of the Belgian like Brett character, such an interesting like, beer thrown in there. Yeah, I'm thinking that's where I'd go with Pipeline, but I'm I'm struggling as to why that one's popping in my head for that wave. But it just kind of is. That's all. And that believe matters. me, like a just to be clear, I have never Maybe served that right wave, time. and I never will. But I've <laughs> drank plenty of beer, like watching people surf yeah. on the <laughs> surf channel, and that's where the yeah, interpretation. I'm going in. True Penny with that one. I love I think. it. I love it for all your your self doubt. I think you think you nailed that, and that's Rob Todd doing it three bay and that's right Rob there. Rob Todd doing it three bay. hundred episodes in, and that's a happy grand game. Oh, is yeah. this a hundredth episode? It will be. It we, will be. Or, no way. I'm we might honored. drop him a little like a. We've said Matt has a tough time uh, with with any type of willpower. Yeah, any type that. of like self control yeah. <laughs> or impulse control. I think we're on episode ninety seven right now. I think people <laughs> in the beer business in general struggle with this whole like self control. Yeah, I act like I'm some <laughs> model thing. of. Uh, it's when more I, impatience is more. It's more no, self-control I'm terrible at. But. I heard you saying fidgety and lack of focus. I was like, oh my God, I can do great things. <laughs> um, we'll drop a 99 or 100. We've been telling listeners forever that Rob Todd would be episode 100 and kind of doing this um, like Jimmy Kimmel type shtick. Where yeah, it's we a say bit like, of great bit. Stay, been, tuned, been stay tuned next week for Rob Todd. Yeah. That's kind of how every episode uh, ends. I, I've, I've heard that for sure. <laughs> I've heard that for and here sure. we are. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, um, I'm really honored that you asked me to do uh, the 100th. Well, they, <laughs> you shouldn't be, but I'll take it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and hopefully I like lived up to that. Right I wouldn't maybe. worry about it. And I think we will see you for episode 200. There it is. All Sign right. me up. <laughs> I'm in the